Today is the day we call Palm Sunday. And it's the day that we celebrate the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as the triumphant king. It's this day that he was celebrated. It's this day that he was honored. It's this day that he was cheered for. Uh, only a few days later to be crucified. One of the lessons we've got to learn is don't put too much weight in people's likes of you. They're fleeting at best. The crucifixion of Jesus was just not because of the hatred of the Jews at the hands of the Romans. The crucifixion of Jesus was the wrath of God poured out on him due to sin. Not his sin, the sin of humanity. As we've been looking at the attributes of God in this series and answering the question, who is God? One of the attributes we'll look at this morning is one that's not very popular to talk about. It's the attribute of the wrath of God. The wrath of God runs throughout the Old Testament and runs throughout the New Testament. The wrath of God is necessary because of God's justice. And both God's wrath and God's justice can be mitigated by God's mercy. Now I want to define for us what wrath is biblically. The wrath of God is God's response to disobedience and sin. There's a lot of words in the Bible that are translated as wrath. A lot of them refer to anger. Uh, in, in Nahum chapter 1 verse 2, the Bible says the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. That word, those words were spoken by the prophet Nahum over the land of Nineveh. Earlier in Nineveh's history, Jonah prophesied over them and by virtue of transportation service of a great big fish, Jonah landed on their shores and had a very short message to them, which was repent or you will feel God's wrath. And they repented as a nation. And a hundred years later, the prophet Nahum comes to them because in that hundred years, they had turned away from God and gone their own way and lived in rebellion to God's laws and to sin and over them, Nahum speaks on God's behalf that God does indeed take vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath on his enemies. The wrath of God is an attribute of God. It's difficult for us to understand what the wrath of God means because we think in terms of human wrath. And human wrath means strong, vengeful anger. The human idea of wrath is this, that when someone wrongs me, I hurt them back. You understand that? That's human wrath. That's not, Christ, it's not a Christian attribute, and it's not God. God does not ever seek to get even with those who break his law. But because God is holy, his holiness demands that sin be punished. And God's holiness demands wrath for lives that live contrary to his holiness. I want to right up front explain two aspects to God's wrath. Aspects that make God appear to be a different God in the Old Testament than he appears to be in the New Testament. 
There's this idea of the active wrath of God and the passive wrath of God. And all through the Old Testament, we see in vivid form what's known as the active wrath of God. For instance, Deuteronomy 9.8, you have aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. The active wrath of God. This is times in the Old Testament when the earth opened up and swallowed people who were enemies. When, 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 when snakes and poisonous serpents bit people and caused them to die because God's active wrath was being poured out. Because Wrath is an attribute of God. It is eternally within God at all times, just like his love and just like his mercy. We see it lived out and fleshed out differently in the New Testament. In the New Testament, what we see is the passive wrath of God rather than the active wrath of God. And the passive wrath of God looks like this, what we read in Romans 1.24. God gave them over in their sin, in their rebellion of him, in their sinful desires, gave them over to those sinful desires of their own hearts. Said, you will experience my wrath through your disobedience, and I will let your disobedience have its due course in you if you continue to disobey me, my passive wrath. Both are present. Both are throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are part of who God is. It's part of his attributes. We've been looking in Exodus 34, and that chapter in verse 6 says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. What are those next three words? Say it with your mouths open, ready, go. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. He is slow to angry, but his wrath is still in play. Though he's slow to bring it about. It's still there. When the Bible says that he's slow to get angry, in the Hebrew, it means literally he's long of nose. Apparently he's Italian. I'm not sure. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he's long of nose. What that means is that it, contextually, when you get angry, you get hot in the face, right? You get a little flush. You get like, oh, and the nose flares, right? And you get to think about it. And so what it means is that he's slow to flare. His wrath is still present, but he's slow to flare. We have to understand this about God, that though he is slow to, to flare, his wrath is still present. It's part of his attributes. And God's wrath is simply an expression of his justice. See, God gets angry when he sees people who were created in his image being mistreated and oppressed and enslaved. And also, similarly, God gets angry when he sees people who are created in his image mistreating and oppressing and enslaving others who were created in his image. So his wrath is an expression of his justice because he loves his creation. And because of God's mercy, he is slow to become angry and slow to level his wrath against people. See, his mercy is the fact that God is infinitely and unchangeably compassionate and kind. These elements, these attributes, his wrath and his mercy are always present. He is immutable and unchanging. He is eternal. They are always present in who God is because they are his attributes eternally. 
And they are fully present in full expression at all times in God. God's mercy is inseparable from his justice and wrath. So the, the question that has to be asked about God's justice is this. And whether you realize this question or not, whether you can verbalize it or not, this is the question that we are all asking at some level. Is God's justice retributive or is God's justice restorative? Now, because those are more than one syllable words, let me help you understand what exactly they mean. The retributive justice of God. It's retribution, retributive justice. The le traditional legal model of that says this, the, that justice demands the penalty of death. It is only satisfied if the guilty pay the penalty or if someone else pays it on behalf of the guilty. That's retributive justice. And the question is, is God's justice retributive or is God's justice restorative? The restorative justice of God is called the healing model. And it says this, that doing the right thing which is to restore to the right state, to heal and to save. It is right to treat others as we wish to be treated, to not hold grudges and not keep account of sins. Restorative justice. So the question we have to ask is, which is God's justice? Retributive justice or restorative justice? And a hush fell over the crowd. Jesus, the answer is Jesus. What, what is furry, has a bushy tail, collects nuts and climbs a tree? Well, we're in church, so it's Jesus. You afraid to answer that question, which one is it? You, you want to sit on the fence? Does that make you feel better? Hard to make a decision in church sometimes, isn't it? Listen, the charge against Retributive justice of God is that this retributive justice cannot change a heart or heal. There's only retribution. The charge for restorative justice is that restoration heals and mends and, mends and imparts life. So the question remains, which is the justice of God? Here's my question. Who said that justice is intended to heal and to mend and to impart life? Since when did that become the definition of justice? Perhaps what's happening in American churches and with people who should understand some of these attributes of God is that we're confusing the justice of God with the need for judicial reform in our land. Let's be careful that we don't misunderstand and mute who God is. See, what's happened, I fear, is that we've misunderstood the wrath and the justice of God, and therefore we've undervalued God's mercy and his grace. And both have profound impact and implication on how we seek justice to those who suffer injustice. See, when we mute and diminish the retributive justice of God, the absolute and forthright penalty for sin, 
When we soften that, what happens is we create a God without wrath that brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment to a Christ without a cross, and it isn't biblical. And it's not God. And it's not Christianity, and so therefore it is not life. The Bible is very clear, and we have to understand this. Just please stay with me through this message. We have to understand this. The Bible is very clear in Romans 3.23 and 6.23 that all of us, every one of us who hears my voice have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, the cost of sin, the consequence of sin, the penalty of sin is death. Consequence. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages, the penalty, the consequence, the retribution of sin is death. God's wrath and his justice demand penalty paid for penalty earned. And the Bible is very clear that we have all earned that penalty. So let me tell you why Easter is so important. God took his retributive justice and took his wrath over lawbreakers and poured it out on Jesus on the cross. And God's mercy made a way for the penalty of sin to be paid without me having to pay it. So I don't fear the retributive justice of God and his wrath because of his mercy through Christ. See, it was God's mercy that was poured out on the wrath that I deserve that was poured out on Jesus. So now there's a way. Finally, for me, there's a way for me to escape the retributive justice of God that my sin rightly deserves. And God's mercy, here's the beautiful thing about his mercy, is that it is inexhaustible and active. It is completely compassionate. His mercy is undeserved. I cannot earn it. I can only accept it. See, here's what I have earned, the retributive justice of God, but what I have accepted freely is his mercy. Let me put it to ter in terms like this. Justice is God's confrontation of human failure. Mercy is God's goodness confronting human guilt. Before God and before others, I'm a failure in every way. And God confronts my failure with his justice and his wrath, but his mercy intervenes if I accept it, and that's his confrontation of my guilt, to impute it upon Christ rather than on me. See, here's what we have to understand. If there's no guilt and there's no retributive justice of God, God still remains merciful because these attributes are eternal and unchanging. They're immutable. But if there's no guilt and no retributive justice of God, though God remains merciful, his mercy is forever unknown to humanity. See, human sin and consequence and God's retributive justice call forth God's mercy so that it's seen and experienced in the world. See, my sin requires God's retributive justice. And in response in God, who is the God of love that we're going to look at next week. The greatest of these is love. 
And though my sin requires the retributive justice of God, in response to himself and his love, God acts in mercy towards humanity and pours his retributive justice onto Jesus on the cross and makes a way, if I and if you accept it, to escape the retributive justice of God. But it's still there. It just doesn't have to be on us. So given the fact that God's wrath, which necessarily requires retributive justice, given that's a fact, and my experience of his mercy, the question then becomes for us, what is our response to injustice in the world? How do we respond to this? If God's justice is retributive, there is penalty, and there's consequence, but yet he intercedes on our behalf in mercy. What is in our response? What is our just response to injustice in the world? Do we then, because God's justice is retributive justice, do we then therefore also practice retributive justice towards every injustice? Or do we simply practice restorative justice where there is no retribution and consequence? How do you answer this? With silence, I understand. Let me help us out here. Here's our problem. And this is why you're quiet right now. This is why you don't know how to answer. This is what we all face. Here's our problem. We prefer retributive justice for others, but restorative justice for ourselves. You understand? That's why you're stuck. That's why you don't know how to answer right now. Let's just say you're driving down a road and some idiot's not paying attention. They rear-end you and you get a little fender bender. What do you want for them, restorative justice or retributive justice? Yeah, let's, let's call it like it is, right? But let's just, let, 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 let's just say this. By no fault of your own, there's a lot of mitigating circumstances. There's a lot of scenarios going on here. I accidentally bumped into somebody. Do you still want retributive justice or now do we need restorative? You understand? When we talk about the wrath of God, when we talk about the justice of God, Christians... Christians should be the ones most aware that we deserve retributive justice from God and most aware that we've received mercy enabling us to be restored. And so it beg let's talk about the real world. In the real world of Christians in this world, it begs the question in terms of justice What's the Christian's response to things like prison reform? Remembering what we want is retributive justice for them and restorative justice for us. See, unless this, I, unless this gets from the theory and the doctrine and theology down to the real world of where we live, what good is it? 
We can talk about the justice of God and the wrath of God and the mercy all we want. But if it doesn't affect me and my world and my neighbor's world, what good is it? And so talking in the real world, it should make the Christian and it should make the Christian church consider justice and injustice and our response to both. How in God's good name does the former AG of California incarcerate innumerable black men to excessive and extensive prison sentences, especially when compared to white men for some things that are not even illegal any longer? Is that justice or injustice? And yet what has the church said especially the white church. Because after all, what we want is retributive justice for them. What does this stuff matter in the real world? Can I talk about something else? How about what's going on at the border right now? Retributive justice or restorative justice? It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous mess for me to preach on ranch hills. I, I realize that. I, I know who I am. I know who we are. But think about it. Here's the thing. Under the banner of retributive justice. Well, you came here illegally. It's not my fault you're in a cage. Do it right. Plenty of people have. Right? Retributive justice. Now remember, what we want is retributive justice for them, but restorative justice for us, right? You can't have it both ways. What's the Christian's response to injustice in this world? There's a lot of it. Whether you believe that that injustice that's going on in the border right now is because of Trump's unjust border closing laws. Whether that's, that's where you land or you land on the idea that, you know what, let's just leave the abused people in their abused lands because after all, if we don't see them, they don't really exist. Or whether you think that, you know, this Biden character created the greatest humanitarian crisis that has ever been seen in our land in the first two months of his, of his, of his presidency and then had the gall to put the same former California GA in charge of border justice? Is that justice? There's a more unjust. Talk about something else? You know all that fruit we produce in the Central Valley? And you know all those folk that picked that fruit? You know, I wonder, well, you know why a bunch of white people aren't picking that fruit? Because we'd have to have health care and retirement and all kinds of unions involved. But we can get other folk from down south to do it for nothing. Right? Is it just? So you see what happens when you take the theory and the doctrine and you start applying it to life? So what's the Christian's response to injustice in the world? 
But whatever it is, it begins with realizing that I deserve retributive justice from God. But I've been offered restoration through his mercy. What it looks like in the real world is in 1992, when Shelly and I saw two little kids, her name is Donna, his name is Joe, who had suffered incredible injustice and a broken humanity and an unjust system that needed to experience the justice of God and his mercy. And because Shell and I had known that what we deserved was the retributive justice of God, but what we were given was the mercy of God that relieved that retributive justice from us and allowed us to live in restoration with the Heavenly Father, we decided it was our obligation to live in just relationship with those who had suffered injustice and adopt Joe as our own. What it looks like in the real world are my friends Kevin and Lisa that entered into a life, two lives, Tori and Joshua, and saw two who had suffered under the injustice of a broken humanity and a fallen system and decided to, out of their response to God's mercy and grace over their life, offer that same I don't know if we'll ever be able to solve the crisis at the border. I don't know if we'll ever be able to institute true prison. I don't know if we'll ever be able to to adjust and assess the systemic injustices. But, But what I do know is that what God justice looks like is the Punambayans who saw Jerry and Cynthia, little girls who had suffered under the same unjust system and needed someone to step in with the righteousness and justice of God into their lives and rescue them because of mercy and grace. I don't know if we'll ever be able to solve all the injustice in the world. I don't know if we'll be able to address all the things that we see that are unjust But you sure as hell better never decry the injustice in the world until you live justly with those who suffer injustice among you. You understand? Because until you and I realize that what we deserve is a retributive justice and wrath of God, we will never appreciate nor receive his mercy and his grace. And until we receive God's mercy and his grace because of the cross of Christ, we will always demand retributive justice in every instance of injustice. My fear is that the church has lost its authority to speak with authority about the retributive justice of God and therefore we have lost the good news of the mercy of the cross of Christ. Because when we redefine 
the wrath of God into something soft and malleable. We've redefined God's love into pure affirmation of all things and all choices of every person. And what we've done is we've actually lost the power of his love and of his mercy when we redefine wrath. Because it's only in the face of wrath do we realize our need for mercy. And the only reason God offers us mercy in the face of his wrath is because of his love. So here's what happens when we redefine and soften his wrath. We lose the power of his love. You know, especially in the United States, we are a people that is bent toward rebellion. There's something in the DNA of the USA that is rebellious in nature. After all, we were born out of rebellion, right? And there's, if we're honest, there's a part of every one of every good-blooded American in this great country of ours that loves to be rebellious. Give me a rule, and I'm going to be a rule breaker. I love rules because I love to break them, and you're just like me. And the ones of you aren't are probably imported from somewhere else because you're a sheeple. And so this we love, we love, we love to break rules. And we celebrate the fact that we're a nation of hell raisers and rebellious people every 4th of July by blowing stuff up. Right? Our country breeds rebellion. And here's what it looks like. In the 60s and 70s, rebellion in the USA looked like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was the counterculture. But nowadays, there is no counterculture. There's only majority culture. And majority culture says you are not allowed to disprove of majority culture. Otherwise, you suffer at the hands of cancel culture. So now what we have in our country is the expectation of generational rebellion. There's the expectation and assumption that children will disobey and rebel against their fathers and mothers because we've lost the opportunity to speak with authority because there is no retributive consequences any longer. And because a majority culture rules the scene now, parents are no longer can punish, can discipline. They must only affirm. Can I push this a little bit? God has ordained three institutions to be the institutions of authority. By his design, he's ordained three institutions to be his institutions of authority. And with the redefinition of God's wrath, there's been a subtle shift and a move in our culture towards the elimination of authority. And as a result of that, we've eliminated consequences and we've eliminated justice. Because without authority, there are no consequences. Without authority, there is no justice. And biblically, God has instituted three institutions of authority to bring both rewards and consequences. And what, I've, what we've seen in the past three generations is an elimination of these three institutions that are designed to be the institutions of authority in our world, family, church, and law. Those are the three institutions that God created for authority. 
the first of those institutions, the family, began its disintegration with the women's liberation movement when they no longer needed a husband. Now, please don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about the idea of equitable and equal treatment, of equal wages and equal jobs. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the right of respect and honor that's due the female personhood with strength and dignity. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is the idea that no longer does a home need a husband and a, fa- and, and a, husband and a wife to raise children. Because with the elimination of the husband, there's been an open door policy to anything can raise anyone, be it one man, one woman, two men, two women, or any mix of the in between. And with the redefining of family, we've lost the authority that God designed it to have. Next was to fall was the church. The church was designed by God to be the authority in the world. And no longer do churches speak with authority in absolutes. Biblical authority has been sacrificed on the altar of redefinition and deconstructionism. And now simply the church is simply one more element of spiritual discovery or social activity. See, there was a time way back in the day when the pastors were some of the most educated and respected people in the community, but not anymore. Now all you need to be a pastor is to look good in skinny jeans and have a good social media presence and a fountain and a coffee shop. And the churches have given up their authority to anymore say, thus saith the Lord. And now the church says, well, I'm not sure. Maybe the Bible means something different now than it did back then. And with the loss of authority in the home and the loss of authority in the church, there's only one institution left. Institution of the law. And what we're seeing in real time is that is being threatened in real ways with the destruction of the authority of the law through defunding and redefinition And once these three institutions either sacrifice relief or have stripped away from them their authority, what happens now is that we stand in a land whose authority resides in each individual to decide for themselves what is right and for themselves what is wrong. And once that happens, we no longer live with the option of wrath. And when there's no wrath, there's no standard, nor expectation for justice, nor consequences for injustice. God's wrath matters. For many reasons, his wrath matters. Because he really does love his creatures. See, Palm Sunday was the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem, coronated as king, What amazes me about Palm Sunday is that this king who did not deserve the retributive justice of, who did not deserve to experience God's wrath, this king, purely sinless, chose a few days later to go to the cross and absorb the full wrath and retributive justice of God on himself for me. God, make no mistake, 
All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, because of the retributive justice of God, are worthy of the ultimate penalty. But God, because of his mercy, because he loves you so much, he loves you so much, made a way for us to escape it. That Jesus took on himself the retributive justice of wrath of God so I could receive mercy. The Bible says, all of this is from God, who reconciled us lawbreakers to himself through Christ and gave us in the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore, Christ's ambassadors in this world, as though God was making his appeal through us. And the Bible says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, not because we deserve it, because what we deserve is the retributive wrath and judgment of him on ourselves. What we've been given is the opportunity to become the righteousness of God. See, God's retributive justice was leveled upon Jesus at the cross. And oh, it's a wonderful cross so that we could be reconciled to God because of his mercy and become the ambassadors of him in this world of a merciful God. If you've not been reconciled to God through Jesus and the work on the cross yet, why not now? Why not? If you have been reconciled to God through Christ's work on the cross, you more than anyone else should understand the gladness and the liberation that you've experienced. And rather than working for injustice across the borders, you've got people in your huddle that you are for them ambassadors of Christ. You who have been set free from the wrath of God because of the mercy of God are now ambassadors of that mercy to the people in your own huddle. Don't you dare decry the injustice at the border if you haven't first done mercy to those next to you. Do you understand? Oh my goodness. Today is a day of gladness. In my world, today's a day of gladness 
Because this is the day that I get to remember again that the God on high came down to earth to observe the wrath that was deserved to me because of the Father's mercy over me. This is the day that I remember that I have bypassed his wrath and accepted his wrath. This is the day that is glad. And if you've recognized that in your life, this is your day of gladness as well. And if you've not recognized that yet in your life, this is your day of liberation. This is your day. It is a wonderful cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you've loved us with an eternal love. I thank you that your love is the greatest of all these things. But we recognize that there are consequences and penalties for our sin and lawbreaking. We recognize that. We recognize the remedy of that as a cross. For those of you who have never understood the correlation between God's wrath and the cross, I want to give you the opportunity right now, in this moment, to bring your life in line with the cross and say in your own words, God, I know what I deserve. And you are right in your judgment. And you are right in your wrath. Thank you that you've been loving in your son. Jesus, I accept you as the leader of my life. Thank you that you took the wrath I deserved on you. Help me be your ambassador to those around me now. Father, I thank you that you're in this place. I thank you for your mercy and grace. I thank you that over these people you smiled. I thank you that in this place you've come I thank you that you have not muted nor distorted your justice nor your wrath, but you poured it on your son. I thank you that you've given us a way out of receiving that, a way of mercy because of your grace, a way through faith. Jesus, I thank you for being obedient to go to the cross. I thank you for being obedient to be resurrected so we could have salvation. I thank you for what this week represents in eternity. I thank you for on this day we celebrate your triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the reigning king. I thank you that it led to the cross of crucifixion. I think that that led to a grave which led to a resurrection. I thank you, God, for this wonderful, beautiful cross that is the instrument both of your retribution and your wrath and of a sign 
sign of your mercy and grace. Father, I ask that over these people and over me would fall in this moment the realization and the appreciation of your mercy and your grace, that you took our wrath that we deserve so we wouldn't have to bear it. We love you, Jesus. You are too good to us. You're too good to us. You're too good to us. Father, you love us when we didn't deserve to be loved. You accepted us and everybody else kicked us out. You took us as your own when nobody else wanted us. You're too good to us. You're too good to us. You're too good to us. Oh, the wonderful cross. Thank you for it, God. We love you. Amen.